Hey everybody, it's Sunday, January 12th, 2014, and recently I had a live mastermind here in Vietnam talking about branding. Uh, Will Evans over from Chiefs from Mandel's here, and we talked about how when you look at Nike, Adidas, uh, even McDonald's, kind of these big companies with big brands, and we talk about building these as solo entrepreneurs at ourselves. And how do you actually do this? And how do you create one? Because it's not something that's made in one or two days. And you look at these big companies like Apple, it's been around for you know decades. And how do little guys like us compete? You know, How do we get into this long-term process? So that's the topic of this episode. We break things down into a very easily understandable level. I got Pamela Wilson over at bigbrandsystems.com. And I've been following her for about two years or so. She has some great worksheets on how to actually get started with branding, how to really bring it down to levels that people like you and me without a marketing or design background can really understand. And so kind of the things we talk about in this episode, you know, how to make sure you're in the right direction, uh, how to make sure you're going in the right path, doing brand audits, and really making sure that everything from top to bottom, bottom to top is consistent. And so and she also made some custom worksheets for us that you can check out over at bigbrandsystem.com slash BMOS. And uh, make sure you guys opt into her list, download this, because I'm certainly on her list. And uh, everything she writes is very helpful, especially... Uh, her newsletter. So I hope you guys enjoy and let's check out this episode. Don't deliver a product, deliver an experience. You're listening to the Build My Online Store podcast and I'm your host, Terry Lynn. We're here to talk about running an online store and building a strong e-commerce brand to take your online store to the next level. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to check us out at buildmyonlinestore.com. Let's get on with the show. All right, so ladies and gentlemen, today I've got Pamela Wilson from BigBrandSystem.com, where we're going to talk about how to build a brand online and kind of how to measure it and how to evaluate how well it's doing. So Pamela, welcome to the show. Thank you, Terry. It's so good to be here. So if we go into your background a little bit, you know, what's your experience with branding? I have been working in this field for over 25 years at this point. So I've helped organizations, larger organizations, and then smaller companies to build brands for their business. And I've done that a couple of different ways. I've done it through marketing consulting, and then I also have a design background. So I've helped them with the visual aspect. And what I found over the years was the the companies who were most successful at building a recognizable brand combined those two elements. So they had the marketing aspect of it, but they also were handling the visual aspect very carefully. So that they had a consistent voice both both verbally and visually. What I wanted to do when I started Big Brand System was to help smaller businesses who maybe couldn't afford to hire somebody like me so that they could do some of this themselves because there are so many tools available to us online now that we really can do a lot of this ourselves if we have some guidance. So that's what I try to provide on Big Brand System is some of that guidance so people can use the tools and use them well. I see. How have you seen branding evolve over the years? Because 25 years ago, I think it was I guess a lot more straightforward, right? Like you just buy a TV spot, maybe put a couple billboards on the highways and magazine ads, and really that was it, right? Yeah, I think branding 25 years ago was an awful lot about how much budget you had to throw money at your brand, and you were able to sort of buy people's eyeballs by placing ads and um, getting your company in front of people through the handful of media that was available at that time. Now, it, it has changed so much because, first of all, we have so many free platforms that we can use to build a brand. You know, they're free to use, but we pay for them with our time, obviously. So we have to use them carefully because we don't have unlimited amounts of time. We have to budget our time carefully and decide which platforms are going to work best for us. But 
we can build a brand in particular online using a lot of these free platforms and and doing a lot of the work ourselves. It's pretty amazing. I mean, 25 years ago, you really did have to hire a specialist to help you with this stuff. And now if you have some background knowledge, you can do an awful lot of it yourself. Yeah, and how would you say if, if I'm saying that 25 years ago, branding was defined by your ad budget, but now it's really defined by the experience you bring, whether it's online or offline. Would you agree with that? I agree with that. I totally agree with that. I think um, experience is a big part of brand. It's the whole experience. So it's the experience of the first encounter with your business. And then it's the experience of being taken through the process of going from prospect to customer, basically. And then it's the experience of what happens to you after you have been a customer for a while and what your interactions with the company are like. So yeah, brand is definitely tied very closely with experience. And that hasn't changed, actually. That's always been that way. I guess it's the message of delivery, I guess, method of delivery back then and now. It's just a lot different. The dynamics are changing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then there's this whole aspect of branding. We feel like we know the companies personally almost, you know, companies have like a personality and we can get to know them as people through social media. I mean, if you follow a business on Twitter, a lot of the tweets can show you aspects of that company that you never would have seen because they're they're kind of personal. You know, it's personal sharing. Yeah. I think one thing you realize since like 10, maybe 15 years ago is that when the internet first came out, it was kind of like these big companies talking down to the little guy, right? But now everyone knows that behind someone on the other side of the computer is, you know, a real person, right? And that when you actually try to hide it, it kind of deflates the purpose and they, they can kind of just go, oh, this is just a phony guy trying to be someone bigger than he is. Yeah, it doesn't go so well. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's better to just um, be a bit more transparent about it and show that there is a human voice behind what you do online. I think that's really important. Yeah, so if we take, go deeper on this, like one thing is when we look at like say Nike, McDonald's, Apple, like they're kind of up there, they have this brand image, right? But as like a little guy like me, if I'm just starting a business today, like where do we even start to build like an image? And because I think when you're starting from blank canvas, it's really easy to get pulled in all these directions. Whereas you get a guy like Nike, Apple, they're really defined by like their colors they use, the fonts, all that. Like, so where does someone even start? Yeah. Well, the place that I tell people to start is thinking really carefully about their ideal customer. And I got to tell you, Terry, nobody wants to do this work because it seems boring, you know, compared to putting together colors or picking fonts for your company, thinking about your ideal customer and really sketching out who that person is is just boring. You know, people don't want to spend time in it. But I will guarantee you that if you don't have that foundation in place, anything you try to build on top of it will be on very shaky ground because it, you know, understanding who you're trying to reach with your message is so fundamental because it ends up influencing all your decisions down the line from that. The colors that you choose, the kind of messaging that you develop, the the fonts you use and your overall graphic style, that is all going to be dependent on who you are trying to reach. So any time that you spend developing a, a description, a really thorough description of your ideal customer and who you want to reach ideally is, is time well spent. Um, and the thing about that, I mean, just to clarify, you you develop this ideal customer and the process of doing that means that you end up having to eliminate some people from your your list you know people are 
very hesitant to do this because they it's like, you know, I want to sell my product to everyone. I don't want to eliminate people. I want everybody to buy what I have, right? But that's way too broad, you know, and that, that's why I like the term. You know, there are lots of terms for this. Some people call it your target market. I really like ideal customer because I think it's all about thinking about who your ideal customer is. That word ideal is really important because you're basically saying, you know, in a perfect world, this is who I would sell to. This is my ideal customer. And you develop a description of that person who who desperately needs what you have to offer. And you think about their lives, think about their challenges, and then start thinking about how you can meet their challenges. And and the idea is your marketing will reach that ideal customer. And then it, it always spills over a little bit and attracts people who are slightly outside that description. So you don't really have to worry about, oh, you know, if I target my marketing toward this, then these other people won't see it. They'll see it and they may not identify themselves as your ideal customer, but maybe they'll aspire to be that person that you're trying to attract. And so you'll end up you know, it spills over and pulls in other people as well, but it's it's very effective for attracting the people you really want to attract. So that's definitely the first step. Not sexy, but everybody's got to spend time on it if you want to be able to build on it. Yeah, and I've done this exercise once or twice myself too. And it's it almost seems very woo woo, kind of like like why am I doing this? <laughs> but because one thing I realized was that it does. If I'm trying to target a customer that's not myself, like say like I'm 30, you know, a single guy living in Asia, you know, kind of whatever. But where I'm trying to target, like say like a woman that's you know in her mid 50s, has two three kids that are growing up. Like, how do I even create that profile when it's not something I can relate to? Because every time I do this exercise. The profile I end up is being someone like myself, like just like a guy, you know, young professional working here and there. And things. so like how does someone do that when their ideal target customer isn't part of their own identity? Right. You think about things from your own perspective because that's what you know, right? So um, I, it's kind of an exercise in sociology, right? So if you were going to re- write a report on the type of person who you want to sell your product to, where, where would you look for information? Well, you look into, for example, the social networks they may use. You look into demographics online and you say, okay, their most popular social network is Facebook. So let me look into Facebook and see if I can see how, what kinds of interactions they're having online, what kinds of things they're talking about. There's a lot of information available to us that we used to have to pay a lot of good money to get access to before. You know, it's available to us online if we, if we look carefully. So it's kind of stepping outside yourself and putting yourself in their shoes and trying to imagine what their lives are like. They have two kids. You know, if they're in their mid 50s, their kids are probably out of the house, actually, at that point, you know, or they're older. So what kinds of things is that person worried about? If you were going to write a story about them, what would be happening to them in the story? What would they be dealing with? It does seem woo woo, because you do basically have to make it up at first, you know, but having that information helps you to develop marketing that is more targeted. And then, of course, you know, down the line, as you start to attract real people, not imaginary people, you can flesh out that description with what you actually know about your real customers. And so is this like, like an ongoing process you do with your clients? You guys always review this kind of ideal customer avatar 
in your work? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Because the thing is, you set out to attract a certain audience, and then and then you start attracting a real audience, right? You start attracting real actual customers. You're going to dis- discover one of two things. You're going to discover either number one, I attracted the people I wanted to attract. Great. So now let me get to know them a little bit. I'll do surveys. I'll call a few of them and see if they'd be willing to talk to me for 10 minutes. Um, I'll get to know, know them as real people. And then number two is you didn't exactly attract who you expected. You attracted people who were slightly different than who you expected. So then you have to decide all right, you know, I attracted a slightly different audience. Instead of a 55-year-old woman, it's actually a 30-year-old guy who seems to really like my product. So what do I do? Do I adjust my marketing and try to pivot a little bit so that I can attract that original group I wanted? Or do I just embrace it and say, okay, 30-year-old guys love my product. So that's who I'm going to work with. And that's kind of a scary proposition to actually throw away parts of your audience too when you make that decision. Too. Yeah, but you know, business is iterative. There's always an aspect of, okay, you know, I make my plans, but then I adjust to reality. There's always an aspect of that. And it's important to kind of go into it open to the fact that you will be making adjustments as you go along. I know you're working on creating a product right now, an actual physical product, right? And the process of creating that product involves iteration, I'm sure. It's like you go into it with this very solid plan of what it's going to look like, but then you meet up against manufacturing limitations, time limitations, cost limitations, and you make adjustments. And that's the way marketing is too. It's no different. Yeah, I have a good friend that calls this process uh, ready, fire, aim. <laughs> exactly. That's perfect. Yeah, that's perfect. And so uh, if we move on to this, so say, you know, we have our ideal customer now. So how do we go crafting a story around this? Because this part kind of seems woo-woo too. Like, because I had a friend who told me, hey, he actually creates fake Facebook profiles for his ideal customers. And then he'll be like, so what books would they actually like? What would, the, what would they post in their status updates that would be going on in their minds? What they want to share with their friends? And what would be their cover photo? And kind of it is a different way to do this because it really lets you get granular because Facebook, you have like a birthday, you know, about me, all these different things you can show in the news feed. That's, oh, wow, that's a great idea. But once you have this now, like how do you help your clients craft a story or where does someone even start? Well, I think there are two elements to the story. There's the the tagline which i always recommend people develop some kind of tagline to go with their business name taglines i'm a huge fan of taglines they're so awesome because you know you you set a name for your business and many times that name has legal implications you have to register it you open a bank account with that name and all of this so that is fairly set in stone But a tagline is basically a piece of marketing copy that you can change whenever you want. So I recommend that people spend some time crafting a tagline, seven or eight words. It shouldn't be too long. I always tell people if it was up on a billboard, I don't want to like drive off the road trying to read your tagline, right? It needs to be short enough that I can kind of capture it all in one glimpse. So it's like Domino's Pizza, right? Like delivered in 30 minutes or it's free or something like that. Exactly. Like you get right to the point and talk about the benefits. So that's a a really essential part of the story. And the way that you can arrive at a tagline oftentimes is developing a short paragraph, which I, of course, I have to brand everything. So I call it your big brand story. And this is basically a three or four sentence paragraph that talks about who you help and what you help them with 
and how you meet their needs in a in a way that's unique to your business. So what I recommend people do actually is develop this paragraph first. And it can be quite difficult to come up with those three, four sentences, but this is copy that you can use on the welcome page of your website. You can use it, for example, if somebody is introducing you for a presentation that you're going to do, they can use those three, four sentences to talk about what your business does. It's very versatile copy. So if you develop that first and then kind of work backwards, many times you can extract your tagline from that copy. The words are all there and you just have to kind of pull them out and and summarize it in a very short, like I said, seven or eight word sentence. Mm-hmm. How do you see positioning fitting into this? Because there's a book a lot of people recommend called The 22 Laws of Marketing. And I remember like number, number one and two were about positioning. So how do you see this fitting in? this framework you just talked about? Well, it goes back to that unique way, right? So it's important to find something about your company that will help you to stand out. And if you are selling something that's kind of a commodity product that everybody has, then you need to think about what kind of story you can tell about your company that will help it to stick out in people's minds. So that's where positioning works into the whole thing. Mm-hmm, I see. And so what are some mistakes you see people when, they, when they're in this stage? Well, I mean, getting back to what we talked about originally, the biggest mistake that I see is that people have not spent the time trying to identify their ideal customers. So their marketing ends up being really wimpy, you know, it doesn't, it's sort of generic. And so in the end, it doesn't really appeal to anyone. And it's like, you know, we're the best. (laughs) <laughs> you know, it just it just doesn't it doesn't do anything for people. So it's it, when people haven't spent that time figuring out their ideal customer, um, you can see it. You can see it because their marketing is just it's ineffective and it doesn't appeal. Like there's no I'm looking for the word flair or I guess there's no flair. There's like nothing memorable about it. There's nothing you can dig in and grab onto. It, it just kind of lays there, you know, it doesn't do anything. That's typically because people are not really targeting a specific group. They're just trying to say, you know, hey, we're great. <laughs> Buy from us, we're great. Because when you're trying to write to everyone, that's where the vagueness comes from, right? Where you just can't focus on someone and target the messaging. Exactly, yeah. When you start to target, then you can add some personality and really use language and, and then, you know, the visual part of your brand so that it really targets and, and appeals to that specific group you want to meet. Yeah. So once we've done this stage, you know, it's kind of it's still very kind of 40,000 foot strategy level thing you're talking about. So when we're getting down to like real tactical granular stuff to actually, you know, make your marketing material on your websites, like where do we go from there? I always tell people it's a process that starts with the verbal. It starts with the the marketing and the verbal part of it. So you develop that brand story, you develop your tagline, you figure out who you're trying to reach, and then you can start translating that into visuals. So then you can look at, okay, what colors will appeal to this specific group that I'm trying to reach? What fonts will they like? You know, um, should I get a logo developed? And I often tell people, you know, a lot of times you can get away without a logo. You can use, for example, a word mark. So you can pick a font, you know, a really nice distinctive font and just type the name of your business out in this font and use that for a logo just to start. Like I can't use a, I can't use a pink Comic Sans MS and font 20 and just go with that. <laughs> you could do that, but I don't know who you're going to attract with that. So <laughs> that's true. <laughs> you, you'll attract somebody, but it probably won't be who you want. 
so yeah um it, it's basically taking it from verbal into visual and you have to continue the story that you started with your words using visual elements so color font logo all of that becomes part of your visual brand and people associate a personality with those elements. So like you said, the pink comic sans, I mean, that is gonna give you a very definite personality. I don't know if it's the personality you're gonna be going for, but that'll be a definite personality. So um, those elements really kind of drive home your branding message. Yeah, so it's like, if I'm like an independent wealth manager for like, you know, really rich people, I wouldn't choose something like pink, with this crazy, fun. I would choose something like maybe dark blue, dark purple or... Exactly. Yeah, exactly. You want something, you know, one of the things that I tell people is I have this brand personality quiz and I tell people this is a really fun thing to do before you're at that point that you want to start translating your brand into the into the visual elements. Because when you know your your overall brand personality, it helps you to pick those elements. So your brand personality might be more classic or more formal and which is what you would think for for example a financial manager or it might be more casual and more contemporary which would be a completely different you know that might be a frozen yogurt business or something yeah or a hipster boutique clothing store in like LA or San Francisco yeah and knowing that going into it makes it much easier to choose those um, visual elements so that they reflect your personality so this is before we get into deeper this is a separate side from the idea customer right so one side you have the ideal customer this this is really defining yourself it is but i i think of it like a pyramid so that ideal customer work that you do is kind of at the base of that pyramid and then the next level up is working on the verbal expression of your ideal customer so it's you're developing that big brand story developing your tagline and then building on that you start to put the visual elements in place so if you do things kind of sequentially like that you'll start out with a nice Nice, strong foundation and you're going to be building on on real information that you've developed about the people you want to meet, to um, to reach and so if we go back into your brand personality workshop because I have it open right now and I've actually used it a couple of times so you know we talked about kind of the corporate personal look what are what other elements are in that worksheet it, um, you, you want to talk about the elements that are on the worksheet or how to apply them yeah I guess why did you choose these I guess five or six criteria to put on the spectrum yeah it was just a way to get people People to narrow it down to so it's set up like a continuum and I tried to put one extreme on one side and then the other extreme on the other and get people to kind of pick where they were on that scale what I did is I set it up so that if you picked more things on the right hand side it was going to tell you one thing about your brand and if you pick more things on the left it was going to tell you something else about what you wanted to do with your brand. This basically, it's a very quick worksheet. I mean, it's not a super in-depth thing, but it's basically to get people thinking about which direction they want to go and how they want to be perceived by the public. Yeah, because one thing I realize is that when you're doing this kind of brand personality thing, you might know what's going on in your head, but you don't know how other people see it. And just because it's in your head, that makes it so difficult. Yeah, exactly. And this is a way to get it out of your head and put it on paper. Awesome, right? So one thing you talked about was kind of font typography and all this stuff. So how does that work? Because when I look at a font, I know if it looks good, I know it doesn't look good. So you talked about some details in one of your worksheets. Can you go over some detail in that? Well, the big thing with fonts is readability. I always start with that because honestly, fonts exist so that words 
this will come to life in our brains, right? We need to read them. So the very first thing you should be looking at when you're looking at any font is, is it easy to read? And the way to find this out is to set the font up in a full paragraph and look at a paragraph written in that font. Some fonts are just naturally difficult to read in paragraph form. Some of them might be able to be used for subheads or headlines, you know, two or three words in a row, that's fine. But once you put a full sentence or a full paragraph there, really difficult to read. So that's the first thing is readability. And then it's sort of, it goes back to that brand personality. So do I want my business to be more formal, more classic? Well, in that case, I might want a serif font. A serif font is the kind that have those those little feet on them. They look a little more formal. They're they're more classic. So that's usually a good choice if you want to express that with your business. For example, our, our financial advisor, you know, he would probably be best served by using a, a more formal serif font. And then if you want it to be more casual, more open friendly, or maybe your business is kind of high tech, then you may want a sans serif font. And those are the ones that don't have the the little feet on them, like Helvetica, for example, that's a very boring version of a serif font, but um, there are a lot of them that, that are, um, you know, have some personality, but also look very clean and open. Okay, so the foot, the serif is like kind of like on an F or a T on the bottom of the character where it has that little thing that squeezes out on the left and right. Is what you're exactly. About. It's like those feet. It's like it's standing on, on a foundation or something. And then sans serif, it takes that off and it's very clean and streamlined. So for example, on everybody's computer, one example of a serif font is Georgia. Georgia is a serif font. And then sans serif would be Helvetica, for example. So sans is without the leg basically. Exactly. Right. Sans is without. Yeah. Yeah. It's stuff you don't notice, but it's also stuff you notice, right? <laughs> exactly. You know, there are a lot of design principles that are basically invisible unless you're aware of them. Yeah. Like kind of like how they say the grids on the website. Like I don't see it, but I know visually when I see a website that's not lined up right, it just feels off, but I can't explain. It. Exactly. You can't put your fingers on it, but you know, something is a little bit weird. Yeah. yeah all right. So let's go into design principles uh, a little bit too. So, you know, for a real 80-20 kind of perspective, like, you know, as someone new to this, like, how do I even approach design? Because certainly I'm not like a professional who can do all this fancy stuff, but well, what are some key things I should be aware of? Then? Colors and fonts are really basic elements that are important to be aware of. So if you pick pick a color palette that is limited, I always recommend that people focus on two main colors and then use an accent color. So pick two main colors and repeat those throughout your website. That's a really important way to kind of communicate your brand and stay consistent. And then pick an accent color that's different from your main colors. So when you want to do something like draw people attention to a call to action or add a button that you want to make sure people see, that accent color will help you with that. What's an example of this then? that has like two main colors and a good accent color? Well, I mean, one example that comes to mind immediately is my own site. So Big Brand System has a deep red and kind of a sky blue color. Those are the two main colors. And then when I really want people to see something, I use a really bright green, which is different from the red. It's different from the blue. It really stands out from the two of them. I don't use it in too many places because the idea is that when it's there, it's because it's something I want people to really pay attention to. And if you start using it all over, then it loses its effectiveness. It gets diluted. So it'll be like, 
if I want people to click a link, I'll use a special call to action color in a sense. Right, exactly. I mean, you probably have an overall link color for your site. And hopefully that's in a color that stands out from your text enough so that people can see that it's a link. But for example, if you wanted, if you had a call to action and you wanted people to really see it, you might choose a button and you might put it in a color that you don't use very often. And that way it's really going to pop out from the rest of your site. This is where some people get geeky about like the red add to cart button or like green to add a cart button and then. <laughs> There's these huge debates about that, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, testing is important. I think in particular for your listeners, they probably do need to test those accent colors before they decide on, on which one is going to work best. It's important that your colors look good together, but it's also important that they work. So testing them is, is going to be crucial before you settle on your final accent color. Like one thing I'm doing is I'm on Apple's website and you notice that all their links are the kind of this light blue hue. And I guess their main colors are like, black, white, and gray in a sense. It's a, they have a very zen website. And I think that the reason that site is so zen is that what they really want to have pop out is their product. All the rest of it is, is you know, all the rest of the information on the site is basically in support of their product. And they want their product to be the most attractive and amazing looking thing on the whole page. So they don't want the headline to distract from it. They don't want the buy button to distract from it. They just want you to be captivated by looking at that product. And they do a really good job at it. Yeah, like you look at the pictures on, say, like an iPad page, like the whiteness of the background, you know, it, it kind of just doesn't distract your eyes. Even the headline, they want to draw you to the pictures on what's in there. Right? Yeah, put yourself in their shoes of using it too. Exactly, put yourself in the shoes of using it is is what they do really well. I mean, they show it to you from different angles. Sometimes they have a video you can watch, so you can see somebody holding it and interacting with it, or just talking about it like they're your best friend and they want to tell you about this cool thing. So they they do get you engaged and get you feeling like. Um, gee, what would it be like to have one of these of my own, you know? Yeah, so I've talked to a friend who was a designer the past one this one. So when we were looking at websites, he was saying the first thing he does is always like, where, where is my eye drawn? as a designer. Is that like a designer thing or I, I, couldn't, I couldn't really understand this? Well, the you know, there's a pretty well-documented, it's called the F-shaped reading pattern. So F is in Frank. What it tells us is that when people come to sites in which are in, you know, any of the, um, any of the basically English or, you know, Roman languages, they're reading from left to right rather than up and down or right to left or anything else. They're reading from left to right. So what that tells us, if you're trying to appeal to that audience is that the most important element on your site needs to be in the upper left corner because that's where their eyes are going to start first. They'll start there and then they work themselves over to the right hand side. So that's basically along your header area. And then they go back to the left and they go down and work themselves over to the right again. So it's creating this F. So if you set up your site so that it recognizes that and it's easy for people who are skimming that way, it, it's just going to take them a little bit less time to absorb your information. And that's what you want. I mean, one of the things about websites is they're all a little bit different. So there's this split second when somebody comes to a website where it's like 
their their eyes are adjusting to what they're seeing and they have to figure out how to navigate through it. It's like a split second where you're like, okay, where do I start? And your eyes exactly, just kind of Exactly, exactly. So if you do something that is against the grain of what most people do, so for example, if you have the name of your site on the right-hand side instead of the left or centered in the middle, you need to understand that that decision has implications. It's just going to take them a little bit longer, for example, to confirm that they're on the right site because they have to search for your header a little bit longer than they would on a site that located it on the left-hand side, which is where their eyes are going first. Trying to appeal to the Western world, put it that way, then you need to follow the F-shape reading pattern and just, you know, a lot of people will say, well, everybody puts their header image on the left-hand side. That's so boring. I want to do something different. Well, it's okay to be different, but you need to understand that it's just going to take people a little bit longer to absorb your site if you set it up differently than how they expect. Um, designers are really, we're really into limitations, which sounds weird, but, you know, whenever you're given a design job, people will say, if they have some good information, they'll say, you know, for example, I need you to redesign my logo. I already have two brand colors, so I needed to use these brand colors and I need the new logo to look somewhat related to the old one. You know, they'll give you all these limitations. And designers, a good designer is like rubbing their hands in anticipation because that's so exciting to think about, you know, what can I do that's really awesome within these limitations? What can I do that is going to help them with their business within the limitations of working with an existing color palette, making it look related to their to their current logo? So that's the way I think about websites as well. You know, people might say, oh, I have to put my logo on the left-hand side. That's so limiting. Or, you know, I have to set it up with this traditional structure that everybody is used to with the navigation across the top and all of this. That's so limiting. It's not really a limitation. It's really just an interesting challenge if you <laughs> want to think about it that way. It's like, what can I do to still be creative and unique within this structure? But based off this kind of F way we look at websites. This is where you also put your one line USP within the header too is why a lot of sites have these subtitles. Yeah, it's a great place to put it because your tagline, if it's really doing its job, is kind of building on your business name. It's giving people some additional information and it's just you know, it's a way to get them engaged in your site. And like I said, if, or like you said, really, if you build it in, with a structure where they see your business name and then they read your tagline, you are using that F-shaped reading pattern to its best advantage. Mm -hmm. I see. All right. So let's move on in to some other topics too. So say we have a website and a brand built already. Like how do we start, say, like a brand audit and evaluate if our current design and our messaging is working with the customers? I like to start by talking to current customers and just asking them. I, I did this exercise last year where I asked people if I could have a phone call with them. And I did about 15 different phone calls, which doesn't seem like a huge sample, but I got so much great information from talking with these people. It was about half an hour with each person. I asked them all the same questions and they had to do with, you know, how are you perceiving big brand system? What do you use the information for? What do you find most valuable? What's the least interesting part of it for you? 
getting that one-on-one information is really, really valuable. If you have a local business, you can take clients out for a cup of coffee and see if they'd be willing to talk to you or, or just call them on the phone and see if they would give you a few minutes of their time. I think that's a great way to start because then you're speaking with your brand's users and you've got input from them and, and you can see if what you're trying to communicate is actually what's being perceived. So how did you evaluate the data then? You talked to 15 or so people. Like, how did, what, what were the next steps you took from there? The next step that I did is I tried to see trends. So I noticed that people mentioned certain things and then, you know, they found other things less valuable. And I saw trends across those conversations that I was able to act on. So what examples were, if we go into a few there? Well, people, for example, told me they really liked my I I put together this Weekend Digest Saturday newsletter, and I spend a fair amount of time on it. It's not that it's that long, but I write a main article, and then I gather some links to share with people. And I wanted to know if people were using it and if they were interested in receiving it, and everyone said they loved it. So um, that was very helpful. I mean, it just let me know that I should continue to do that. And then there were other things like products that I had launched that they they told me they didn't even know that I had launched them. (laughs) So that told me that I needed to make more of a fuss around them. And the overall feeling that I got from people was that they were time crunched and they needed things that would solve specific problems. So that helped me to figure out what kinds of things I should develop going forward. That It was a fantastic use of my time. I mean, it ended up taking a fair amount of time, but I got so much information. It gave me information to work with throughout this whole past year. And how often would you advise people to do this? Is it like once a year thing, maybe every half a year? Or? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it's dependent on your business. Um, I might do it again sometime next year, so it'll be every two years maybe. But I guess it just depends on whether you feel like you know, after you speak to people and you do this kind of an audit, do you have information that you can then act on? Then obviously you need to act on the information and see what happens with your business. If you still feel like you're not quite hitting the target, then it may be time to go back to the drawing board. And, you know, you can do these one-on-one conversations, but you could also do surveys. Surveys can be helpful as well. So it's basically these conversations you have with your customers or ideal market allows you to go back to your pyramid that we talked about earlier and kind of evaluate the different levels you're at, right? Exactly, and make adjustments if you need to. So if what you're trying to communicate isn't coming through, then you can figure out, okay, well, where do I need to make adjustments so that my message gets through to people? I see. So if we review just what the pyramid was again as we wrap things up, can you go over the different layers again? Sure. So the very bottom is ideal customer. It's that thinking about who you want to try to appeal to and fleshing out, like you said, kind of the woo-woo idea of who these these people are about. Um, Obviously, you will um, add information as you attract real customers and you'll be able to create an ideal customer description that's based on reality. But when you're first starting out, you do kind of have to use your imagination, but it's important to do that work. So it's your ideal customer. And then the next level is to develop your verbal brand. So that's your big brand story, which is what I call it. It's a few sentences about what your business offers who it offers um, it to, so a description of your ideal customer, and then how you meet their needs in a very unique way. And then from that big brand story, I usually encourage people to extract a tagline. And that's seven or eight words that kind of condenses down what you offer and tells people 
what you can do for them just very briefly. And then on top of that, then you start to build your visual brand. So it's your colors, your fonts. It might be a logo or it might be a simple typeface, um, but it's it's taking what you've developed as far as your ideal customer description and then that verbal part of your brand and putting it into visuals that communicate the same thing. That's funny because most people would start with the logo first. Yeah, no, that's not the way to do it. In my opinion, that's not the way to do it. That's not what I recommend. I mean, I've seen people spend thousands of dollars of, on logos that they then had to ditch because they didn't do that ideal customer work and they develop a logo that is not going to work to attract those people. And then, you know, we haven't talked about the very tippy top of the people pyramid. So you want to talk about that? Yeah, let's do that. What's on the top? At the very tippy top of the pyramid is consistency. So you've done all this work to figure out your ideal customer. You've developed your your brand story. You've developed a tagline. You have a visual brand. And so at the very top, you really need to use these elements consistently over time and resist the urge to go in and change your brand unless you have information that your brand actually needs changing. And the reason for that is because people are exposed to so much marketing that it's very difficult to make a dent and have them remember who you are if you're changing who you are and how you present yourself. This is like how Coca-Cola is red and white, no matter where they are, if it's on Tumblr. No matter what, yeah, exactly. They're very, very consistent. And, you know, they have a lot of money to spend. So they could actually, they actually could change their brand up and they they could probably pull it off. But for those of us who are working with, working with budgets that are much more limited than Coca-Cola's, we really need to be very consistent about how we present ourselves. I always tell people, right around the point that you are sick to death of your logo, that's when people are starting to remember it. So don't change it, you know, because that's when it's starting to make a dent. When you're talking consistency, you're talking about the two colors and the accent colors I use. I should use it on my website, maybe on Pinterest background, on my Facebook page. You should all be consistent across all platforms. Uh, right? Exactly. On your invoices, every place you possibly can, you want to be communicating that, that visual brand. And the same thing with the verbal brand. I mean, the way you talk about your company, you can't just dramatically change that description of what you do unless it's based on research and you really have good information that you need to change. And then, you know, even if you do need to change, I always recommend that people do it in baby steps. So, um, you know, we gave that example of the designer who was designing a new logo, but the person told them that they needed to use the same brand colors. And that's a great way to approach it unless you've discovered that the brand colors you're using just do not attract the customer that you want to attract. If you have to do a redesign, try to base it on some element of what you had before so that people can, you can sort of build on that nice goodwill and recognition that you've managed to build up over the years. You can change everything uh, across the board. You can definitely do that, but you need to understand that if you do that, you are basically starting completely from scratch, like you're back on day one of your business. You're going to have to develop the whole thing again, all that recognition and helping people to understand what you offer and all of that. So if there are elements that you can salvage from your current brand as you go forward, like if you discover, okay, I need to make a change, I absolutely need to make a change, 
as you go forward, if you can pull some elements from your past brand and apply them to your new brand, you're going to be building on some of that recognition that you've developed over the years. So if you use the same fonts or use the same colors or, you know, some piece of that, that's going to help. I see. So it all goes back to the customer profile in the end, kind of the woo-woo stage, which now when we, you know, that we talked about it for almost an hour, it's very much more granular when you put it in like a pyramid. It, it, it really is. I mean, that's the base of everything. You really have to build on that solid foundation or else you're just you're just guessing you know you're just guessing or or people end up choosing stuff that they like personally and like you said the stuff that you like personally as terry lynn may be very different from that customer who you're trying to attract so you need to take yourself out of the equation and really put yourself in the shoes of that person you're trying to attract yeah i had a friend in bali who was selling coffee and he was saying every time he marked up his prices by two times, it would just sell out. And he was just baffled. It was so counterintuitive that what he thought his customer want wasn't what they actually behaved. And it's just very counterintuitive for him, too. So. Yeah, it, it, that's the stuff that's fascinating about marketing. And, I, you know, I'll never get tired of marketing because those kinds of stories just keep you trying different things. You know, it's amazing. You you can't predict human nature. You can do your best, but in the end, you have to put it out there and see what happens with it and then just make adjustments. Yeah. So even if you look at a guy like Richard Branson or, you know, some billionaire, like where they're at now in life, you know, they can buy anything they want, do anything they want. But how do they get a business idea to think back into what the average consumer is thinking. That's a difficult thing for them to do too. And there's no way you can find out unless you just test it. Exactly. Yeah. And you look at somebody like Richard Branson, he's tried a lot of different things and they haven't all been successful. People talk about his successes, but they don't remember the things that he's put out there that haven't done as well. And that's that's the name of the game. If you're an entrepreneur, you have to just put things out there, see what happens. And if they don't work out, you just take it as information and move ahead, you know. Awesome. All right. Very cool. Well, Pamela, thanks for joining us today. Listeners, you guys can find out more about Pamela Wilson at BigBrandSystems.com. Um, and last thing, where can we connect with you online besides your website? You can connect with me on Twitter. I'm at Pamela I. Wilson. And there's also a Facebook page. So it's um, facebook.com forward slash The Big Brand System. I don't spend a whole lot of time on, on Facebook, but um, I share some good articles there. So, And I'd love it if people would sign up for my, my marketing toolkit. I have a free marketing toolkit that I can send them that kind of, builds on this ideal customer idea and then shows them how to work their way through and apply it to the visual part of their branding. And I'd love to send it to them. It's completely free. So I can give you a link to that if you want. Yeah, I'll link to it in the show notes too. I really like a couple of ones you've had, like the color guide, uh, the font guide, and also the personality profile kind of primer too. So I'll link to those, all three of those. Great. Yeah, awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Pamela. And you have a good morning. You too. Thanks, Terry. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Build My Online Store podcast. If you want the show notes, make sure to check out the website at buildmyonlinestore.com. If you've got an e-commerce store, every two weeks I lead a live mastermind call with about five or six of the listeners in two separate groups where we work openly together and solve a business problem that you have. And we're all there to support each other. So if this sounds like your cup of tea, make sure to check us out at buildmyonlinestore.com slash mastermind. Thanks again for tuning in and I'll catch up with you guys next week.